Isaiah chapter 53. I want to read this servant song tonight. Truly some of the most familiar words in all the Bible. Certainly, we know the Ethiopian eunuch, as he journeyed back from the feast, was meditating on these scriptures as the Lord led Philip to come and from that same scripture preach to him Jesus. Doubtless, The Apostle Paul opened to Isaiah as he went in the synagogues and opened and alleged that Israel's Messiah must needs to have suffered to have risen from the dead. And as we read, and really beginning from chapter 52, verse 13, this is one of those unhappy incidents of misplacement of a chapter division, uninspired chapter divisions, but the Lord, Jehovah, calls upon us to look at His servant. And you find as you go through Isaiah's prophecy, more and more detail unfolded that Israel, that in so many ways was to be and was His servant, had failed. Prophet, priests, and kings types and shadows that they were had failed. But there was a servant that would come that would not fail. He would be successful in what he had come to do. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which hath not been told them shall they see, that which they had not heard shall they consider. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison 
and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and prosper. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen. May God again prosper the public reading of His Word. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, tonight, as we have lifted voices, we trust lifted hearts in praise and worship. We would, as this final hymn calls us to follow our Savior, in those various moments of His passion and His resurrection. Lord, we're grateful tonight, even as we partake of emblems that speak of His passion, of His suffering and death, that it is of a risen Christ that we meditate tonight. There was success in His passion. And death has no more hold over him. Death has no more hold over us because he has died. And by dying, well, we sing it well, death by dying slew. And so tonight, give us grace as we would come around these familiar words. And that we might rightly and with great encouragement and profit remember our Savior tonight. We ask it in His name. Amen. I've been thinking much in the last week. I might say hurriedly thinking because I have at the end of the month to begin lectures and a course in soteriology. Some of that it gets preached all the time. Some of that is etched in the heart and mind and, well, can come without a lot of preparation. But there needs to be structure. There need to be assignments and quizzes and such things as that. And there does some labor follow those. So I've been reading a little bit, and though I think it'll be a brief part of the opening weeks or days of the semester... The Accomplishment of Redemption, if we can borrow John Murray's great title, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, uh, we'll spend most of the time in that application, but 
the accomplishment. We must look at the work of our Savior if we're going to study the doctrine of salvation at all. And it brings us to the atonement. And of course, we have to get into those debated, controversial aspects of the atonement with regard to its extent and so forth. But its nature, what it is, the different questions and sadly debates that have emerged in church history, even to its necessity. Some look at it as a moral influence. Some as a mere example. Some an unfortunate martyrdom. But the Bible's perspective, an atoning death, a vicarious atonement for the sins of His people. And one of the aspects of that we have to wrestle with with students, the necessity of the atonement. And we have to pause there because there's an aspect in which we teach, we underscore the absolute necessity of the atonement. There's no other way for sinners to be saved. Paul speaks of it in plain terms. If there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. If there were any other means, then by all means Christ would not have suffered. But the necessity of the atonement, the atonement is true only after God has purposed to save. When we speak of the necessity of the atonement, there's a great sense in which it wasn't necessary. It's only necessary if anybody's going to be saved. It wasn't necessary. For God to save any of us. The only obligation God was under was the righteous execution of the sentence of His broken law. It wasn't necessary for Him to save. He chose to save And as we read through this servant song, perhaps the most vital or obvious, important piece of the song is the vicarious nature of the atonement. I think I've spoken to you of a wonderful chapter in David Barron's book on this servant song, The Prophetic Gem. And it's setting. And he speaks of where it's located in the prophecy of Isaiah. He works his way from the bookends of this latter portion of the prophecy with all these words of hope and expectation. And ultimately to the very center of the center of the center is the phrase, He was wounded for our transgressions. And so vicarious substitutionary atonement 
is at the heart of the servant's song. But I want to focus tonight more particularly on verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. We speak of the vicarious sufferings of Jesus. Praise God. But let us look at another aspect of his sufferings. The voluntary nature of his sufferings. God had purposed, and we read in Scripture, and of course our minds, both going backwards and forwards, are overwhelmed when we think in terms of eternity and try and apply it from our perspective of time. But before the foundation of the world, there was a council, if you will, in the Godhead. Reformed theologians wrestle and struggle with terminology. But it's often spoken of as the covenant of redemption. It's almost what underlies and precedes, if you will, what we speak of as the covenant of grace, which is the outworking of God's plan to save those who were lost and condemned and dead in the first man, to be justified and redeemed and saved in the second man. But behind that outworking of that saving purpose was the purposing itself. We spoke somewhat on this many weeks ago now in our studies in Romans where we had a, a little Trinitarian reference that appeared before us. And you think in the eternal counsels of God, in that uninterrupted perfect communion of the three persons of the Godhead. The Son, recognizing the wisdom, recognizing the sovereign purpose, consents. Because He, if you look through this passage, is the one of the divine persons, all of whom are involved in the application of redemption. But He alone, He alone, in its purchase, but within Him, is a consent. Yes. As we have spoken of the second psalm, He asked for us. Ask of me, and I will give thee, not just Israel, I'll give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. I'll give you a people out of every tribe and tongue and kindred. And you read here, this servant song even brings us to what is spoken of as a quid quo pro. A price for a people. But I say verse 7 speaks to us of the voluntary 
nature of this. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter. If you look in the preceding verses, again, where that vicarious nature of the atonement is highlighted. You think of the last phrases of verse 6. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It speaks of that taking of what belonged to us. Iniquity, transgression, guilt, a penalty. And it says he was oppressed. This word oppressed can have the meaning of to exact. It's actually used elsewhere in the Old Testament of raisers of taxes. I think we're approaching April yet, but I guess some people have, what is it, September 15th looming? Quarterly payments. The exacting of the taxes. Meeting out what is owed. Christ is oppressed. And the oppression that He bears is an exacting of a price. I've mentioned a couple of perspectives in prayer meeting and then this morning and now tonight, this last week, a couple days away at this annual Bible faculty summit. Different schools, all conservative, mainly what would come under the label fundamentalist schools and seminaries. A couple papers were a little frustrating. One guy was really trumpeting the dispensational banner. Had a couple of good meals with him and friendly conversation, but the Q&A times just weren't long enough to go where it needed to go. But one of the men read a paper. He's actually, two years now, been getting a little bit in our territory, doing some historical papers on Baptists and their embracing of covenant theology. And even some discussion about the covenant of redemption. And, well, some some good stuff. And to think of Christ as a divine person, as the offended party in that broken covenant of works. One who would have full knowledge of what that penalty entailed. The wrath of an infinite Thrice holy God being meted out against transgressors. That He voluntarily took upon Himself the exacting of that debt. One of the errors that is often committed sometimes almost unwittingly by believers themselves, is that Christ had to purchase, as it were, the love of God. Christ had to 
atone for us in order to persuade God to save. And the opposite is true. We read it in the most famous text in all the Bible. John 3.16 does not say God so gave that He could ultimately love. It said God so loved that He gave. Christ so loved that He voluntarily took upon Himself what was due against our sins. If you read further in our lonely text, as it were, verse 7, He opened not His mouth. When Christ came to the trials, one of the phrases in that hymn we sang, see the Lord of life arraigned. You ever just pause in your readings? And we get there usually at Easter. But the creator of the universe standing before Pilate, bearing all the moral qualities of a modern politician. What is truth? See the Lord of life reigned. There's every answer in the world for Jesus to offer. There's every ability in heaven and earth for Him to come out from under those sufferings. Sometimes I feel like that gospel song He could have called 10,000 angels just fails to grasp, as it were, the gravity of the truth of his statement. I could call to my Father and ten legions of angels. But he opens not his mouth. He had come for that purpose. He said in Luke 12, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened until it be accomplished? You think of every means he had to prevent it, the calling of the angels. And he said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have the power, I have the authority to lay it down. And I have the authority, I have the power to take it up again. If we could reverently speak of it though, He could not, He could not take us with Him to glory without Laying it down. No necessity rests upon him except his desire to save. There is much 
in meditating on the voluntary nature of the sufferings of Jesus. As we come and think of how it is phrased here, as a lamb brought to the slaughter, as a sheep before shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. I've commented many times being smitten with the phrase in Romans of us. Paul's description there in that summary of Jew and Gentile, all the world guilty before God. That he prefaces that statement of universal guilt with the phrase that every mouth may be stopped. There's no excuse. There's nothing we can utter that relieves us from God's wrath. We deserve it. Period. We only worsen the case by arguing that we don't. And this spotless victim who could have opened his mouth in his own defense, who could have immediately sent his enemies to oblivion, it's not for any sin of his own. It's because our sins were counted as his that he didn't open his mouth. He did not protest because He would justly bear the penalty of what really belonged to us. Not of necessity. Not by coercion. Because He sovereignly chose to do so. God so loved that He gave. Tonight, as we partake of familiar elements that speak to us of the body and blood of this Lamb of God, let us meditate on His desire, the voluntary nature of his sufferings. I want you to take the 